How, how about we pray that, that this vision becomes real for us, for our hearts, for our church, for our city. Uh, this morning's going to be l- less sermon, a uh, little bit more vision, a bit of a catch up on where we've been, the stuff that we rolled out at the beginning of this year and a little bit extra uh, for the next five years. So if you've got a Bible, go to Matthew 28. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. I'm going to pray for us now as we look at the word and ask that God would give us the faith that we need to see this vision happen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who has a heart for this city, a heart for seeing the name of Jesus made famous here. And so we pray, God, give us the faith to believe that this indeed can happen. That as we see our labors, our effort, our risk, our sacrifices come to fruition, God, that you would multiply the work of our hands, that we would see new communities of light planted in new suburbs, that we would see new disciples come to worship Jesus for the first time, that we would see new churches planted that would in turn plant new churches. God, give us the faith to believe that this is at the heart of your plan, your will, and that this can happen. Or we pray that you might reveal to us ways that we can play our part in seeing your vision come to fruition in this city. Give us faith, we pray, in the powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen. Hey, Terry, it sounds like I'm coming out of the fallbacks up here. It could just be me. I don't know if you're familiar with the term viral marketing, but um, it's fairly common these days. I mean, we're all aware of this idea of viral marketing. And the idea is that you create a message that's so compelling and creative that it is shared and replicated and multiplies. And often they're, they're lower budget marketing campaigns that are so good that the general population just does the, 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 um, the promoting of the product or the promoting of the message or the promotion of the company for the company. Um, it's kind of like operates off the principle of how a virus operates. So there is a host who has a virus and then passes that virus on to the next person and they pass it on to other people and there's this exponential multiplication of this message going out. In fact, viral marketing is so standard these days that our marketing companies refer to stealth viral marketing. They don't want you to know that they're doing it, so they just do it on stealth. Some of my favorite and some of the best um, viral marketing campaigns have been uh, the Melbourne Metro campaign. I don't know if you remember seeing that one, Dumb Ways to Die. You know the little jingle? Dumb ways to die. It's like this, this cool little combination of like cuteness and violence all in the same thing. Like little cute little characters getting chopped up and blown up. It's really cool. That one had 2.3 million views in, in 24 hours. 2.3 million views in 24 hours. And, and today I think it's upwards of about 20 million views. Well, my personal favourite, and, and I'm sure you've seen this one, is the New Zealand anti-drink driving ad where the guys are at the party and this guy's having a... He's internalising a very serious, complex situation. He's like, oh, no. George is wasted. But he's driving. I should see something. But Monique will think I'm dumb. Hey, bro, Monique thinks you're dumb. (laughs) Love that ad. It's so good. (laughs) Apologies to our Kiwi brothers and sisters if that was a really poor interpretation of your mother mother tongue. But you know, the, um, the most successful viral marketing campaign has been the Old Spice campaign. I don't know if you remember that one. The man that your man could smell like. Look at him, look at me, look at him, back to me. That campaign 
reached 23 million views in just 36 hours. 23 million views in 36 hours, and now stands about 53 million views on Facebook, on, um, on YouTube. Viral marketing. It's this crazy idea of creating something that is so compelling and creative and catchy that people just cannot help but share it and spread it. Now, it seems to me that there's been a, and look, forgive the cheesiness of this transition, but it seems to me that there's been a, a viral campaign happening since the first century when Jesus first gave his disciples a message that has been communicated for the last 2,000 years. It literally has gone viral. It's gone global, started with a small little group of people, about 120 of them meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 to some 2.3 billion people today who say that the name of Jesus has radically transformed their life. That's viral. 2.3 billion people saying that they've been impacted by this message. Imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church, part of a movement that went viral in this city again. My hope is that as we walk through what it looks like to multiply as a church, we will catch a vision for this church being a church that would multiply and multiply and multiply, that we would see exponential growth for the gospel that radically transforms this city. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give you four reasons why we should multiply. And we talk about how we do that. And then I want to try and Give you the faith to believe that this is possible as we finish in Mark chapter 6. So let's go to Matthew 28 to start with. The reasons that we multiply. The first reason is Jesus commanded it. Have a look at Matthew 28 verse 18. Jesus, after his resurrection, just before he ascends to the Father's right hand, huddles his disciples together and commissions them for what he's leaving them to do. And this is what he says, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commission to his disciples is that they would go and make more disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples at the very basic understanding of what they were to do is that they were to do exactly what Jesus had done for them that is preach them the good news of the kingdom ask them to follow him and then send them to go and make more disciples of Jesus it's a vision for multiplication. In fact, you notice in there that Jesus says, and don't just convert them, don't just bring them into the kingdom, but teach them to obey everything, everything that I've commanded you. Well, what's the final command that Jesus left his disciples with? It was the command to go and make more disciples. So what Jesus has in mind here is that people would be committed to the process of making new disciples in the faith, establishing them in the faith, and then sending them out to repeat the process. It's a vision for exponential multiplication. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts and see that that started to take place the very moment the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter stood up to preach the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. This is a vision for multiplication that people would be brought in, built up, 
and sent out on mission for Jesus. That is the whole thrust of the New Testament. That we would bring them in, build them up, and send them out. And hopefully you've realized that that's what we've been doing here at Anchor. You've joined our church. We've given you a vision. We've sought to train you. And then we're trying to send you off to start new works, new gospel communities, hopefully new church plants in the coming years. And so this vision that Jesus has is a vision of disciples who make disciples, 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 who make disciples. Right? That's the vision. That Jesus has. So the first reason that we multiply is because Jesus told us to. And if it's good enough for Jesus, then surely it's got to be good enough for us, right? Yeah. And, and yes, good. It has to be good enough for us. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's got to be good enough for us. Jesus commands us to make disciples. Our ecclesiology, that is our understanding of church, our missiology, our understanding of mission, has to be affected by our Christology, our understanding of Jesus. And what he came to do was to give his life to make disciples who would go and make disciples of others. So the first reason we multiply is that Jesus commanded it. The second is that Paul expected it. Come to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says to Timothy, his disciple, the person that that Paul considered his son in the faith. Paul mentored Timothy. Paul walked alongside Timothy. Paul filled Timothy with faith as he trusted in the, the gifting that the Spirit had given him to be a pastor. He discipled him. He mentored him. He says, Timothy, what you have heard from me, what you have seen in me, pass on to the next generation. Pass that on to people, men and women who love Jesus and will be faithful with this gospel message so that they will then pass it on to others. Paul's expectation is that Timothy would continue to do for him what he had been doing, would make new disciples of Jesus. In fact, Paul has four generations in mind here. Do you notice that? Paul, generation one, Timothy, faithful people, and others. Paul clearly says to Timothy, look, it's not time to relax. I know I'm going to die. I'm in jail. This is his last letter, the last words that Paul writes. He doesn't say to Timothy, well, just, just chill. Just relax. I've done all the heavy work. Just go back into maintenance mode now and keep the ship running. He doesn't say that because he knows if that's the mentality, the church will die in a generation. This has to be something that is passed on to the next generation, to the next person who is equipped and trained and sent. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. Reason number two that we ought to be on about multiplication is that Paul expects it. Jesus commands it, Paul expects it, and the church requires it. If you uh, read the scriptures, the New Testament, what you notice about all of the images that are associated with church and the kingdom of God is that they're all kind of organic images capable of reproduction. You think of the images of church, right? What are the images that we have? We have a, 
a body. We have a family. Or you think of the images of the kingdom of God, and I realize that the kingdom of God and the church aren't identical, but there's a close association there. The, the kingdom of God is described as a seed. Kingdom of God is described as a vine. The kingdom of God is described as a tree. All of these things are capable of reproduction. They're life-giving, organic images. And everything that is healthy reproduces and gives life in those pictures. A tree, for example, will drop its seed and it will give birth to another tree. Hence the saying, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. You know that saying that a son is just like his father, a daughter is just like her mother. The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. The apple falls, the seed goes into the ground, and a new tree is given life. And so the church, the nature of the church being described with organic terminology means that healthy churches give birth to new churches. We reproduce, we multiply. That has been the case for all of church history. Now the reality is that if a species is going to survive, it has to pass its DNA on to the next generation. Otherwise it dies. And the same is true for the church. If we're not investing in sending, in multiplying, in raising up the next generation of leaders and commissioning them to go and do the same, then the church will die. What you need to do is look around church history to see that that is true. And that's the final reason why we must multiply. First is that Jesus commanded. Second is that Paul expected. The third is that church requires it. And the fourth is that history demonstrates it. If you look at church history, what you notice is that for the first 250 years, churches didn't meet in church buildings. They met in people's homes they met in the, probably in the, the larger homes of the wealthy members within their congregation. And the church would gather and they would meet in that home. If you look at Paul's missionary strategy, he would go to a city, he would preach the good news of Jesus, they would establish a church in someone's home, in Lydia's home. The church was established. And what happens as a church grows in that city is that they had to start new House churches. And so Paul will write a letter to the churches of this city, knowing full well that there is one church, but multiple expressions of those churches in multiple people's homes across the city. And so the early church expanded, not by opening gigantic auditoriums and filling them, but by multiplying small house churches. And it wasn't until the third century that Constantine decided to make Christianity the official state religion that all of a sudden the churches had the ability to open buildings and build cathedrals and all that kind of stuff. For the first 250 years, we multiplied home groups. So church history demonstrates that this is the process that has happened. That as a church expanded and as it grew, they started a new home church. They started a new home church. Eventually, they started new churches in buildings. Do you know that every single church was once a church plant? All of them. I mean, they all had a start date. They were all started by someone. They were all people that had a vision to start a new church that God had called them to that began a new church. And so the question shouldn't be, well, why should we church plant? Why should we multiply? The question is, why did we stop? Because that has been the trajectory of history for the last 2,000 years. 
The church has been planting new churches rapidly and expansively across this globe. And the reason that we are here in this building under the name of Jesus is because someone planted a church here. In fact, Richard Johnson planted the first church and preached the first message. I think you can go and there's a little monument in, in the city. I think it's um, Philip Street there. You can go and, and stand on the site where Richard Johnson, the first chaplain on the first fleet, preached the first message in Australia, held the first church gathering. Since that moment, Australians have been planting churches and planting churches and planting churches. And so the reason we multiply is because church history demonstrates that that is what has happened for the last 2,000 years. So Jesus commands it, Paul expects it, the church requires it, and history demonstrates it. That's why we multiply. But the second question I want to ask is, how do we do that? How do we do that process of multiplying disciples, multiplying gospel communities, multiplying churches? And hopefully this is not new to you. Hopefully this is, all, this is just all like, yes, I've heard this before and I can't believe Matt just keeps talking about the same thing over and over again. Sometimes it gets tiring. But they say that we don't, we, we don't hear a message until we hear it ten times. The reason that we have to put glossy brochures on your seats is because we live in a message-saturated culture and so we need to put, and it's necessary, we need to put effort into something that screams, look at me, this is important. And so we communicate this over and over and over and over again. How do we do this? Well, the first way that we multiply ourselves is by a commitment to prayer saturation, spirit dependence, and gospel motivation. Prayer saturation, spirit dependence, and gospel motivation. You know, Jesus said in John 15, and this is what kicked our vision off at the beginning of this year on the 31st of January. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you will bear no fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is his work. This is what Jesus commissioned. Right? He said to the disciples on the mount in Matthew 28, he said, I will be with you. The reason that you have the authority to do this is because I have all authority in heaven and on earth and I've commissioned you to this. And in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church. Jesus is doing this work. And so we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can do this on ourselves, on our own. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That has to drive us to our knees, church, in prayer desperately pleading with God to do what only he can do as the gospel is preached to awaken dead hearts and move people from death to life. This has to be a movement that is birthed out of deep prayerfulness, that we saturate every corner of our church life in prayer. And I know I've said this a thousand times, but one of my big disappointments is that we haven't been a church that has prayed enough and we want to, I want us to grow in this area of prayerfulness. So the first thing, the first way we multiply is to saturate everything in prayer. The second is that this is a Holy Spirit-dependent, Spirit-guided thing. We, we just finished our series on the Holy Spirit. One of the chief things that He does is to navigate, direct, and guide the mission of Jesus. 
That's why he's been sent. And so he fills us and empowers us and then directs the mission. Again, if we think that this is our strategies and our plans and our cleverness and multiplication makes sense at a totally pragmatic level, then we lack the substance and power behind what is going to birth a work of God in this city. It is all a work of the Spirit. And so we need to be a church that is desperate and dependent and prayerful and seeking God. And finally, this happens by a motivation for the gospel. I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you in a second, a bunch of goals. And it's very easy to lose the God behind the numbers, behind the goals. It's very easy to begin to work towards achieving something because we love to achieve and not realize that, as Laura reminded us earlier today, that Jesus has achieved it for us on our behalf. That the gospel motivates this because we love God, because we desire that Jesus would be glorified, because we desire to see people rescued from Christless eternity, that we make much of him, that we preach the good news. The gospel has to be the foundation that this is built on. If we build on anything else, if we build on anything less, it will fall apart. It will not endure. There will not be a legacy. And so this has to be something that is prayer-saturated, spirit-dependent, and gospel-motivated. The other way that this multiplication happens, and for us, our, our mission, so our, our, if our vision is to to make disciples of Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to make him famous, then the way that we do that is our mission. And our mission is a community of missionaries, a family of missionaries. That's what we're about. We're about living in community, on mission for Jesus. That has been our strategy from day one. We're going to continue to do that, to meet in communities where we do life together, where we share the gospel with each other, where we eat together like a family, where there is care for one another. And as our world watches in on those relationships and can't help but see that there is something compelling about this type of community, that there are people who love like they've never seen love happen, that there are people who experience the love of our communities like they've never experienced before. Our church, our gospel communities, are the hermeneutic of the gospel. That is, that they make the gospel look real. People can see that Jesus has radically transformed our lives. And so we're a family of missionaries. And if we're a family of missionaries, we need to live that out. We need to be equipped for that. We need to be committed to that. And so what we've been doing since day one, we're going to continue to do. Gather on a Sunday for the worship of Jesus, the preaching of the word, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, for baptism and scatter during the week to be communities of light across this city. And we want to do that increasingly as we grow. So that's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it as a family of missionaries. That's not new. Hopefully you've not heard. I mean, maybe if you, this is your second week, that's new information to you. But if you've been here for a while, hopefully it's not new that we're about living in community on mission for Jesus. The other way that this is going to happen is by risk and sacrifice and generosity and time and effort. So let me speak to a couple of things quickly. This has to, th th there's always a quota of risk about multiplication. 
We, we've felt this. I know my gospel community has felt this. That there is a risk of multiplication. What if it fails? What if it doesn't work? What if I don't get along with anyone else in my new gospel community? What if I've got this great gospel triplet and we all go off to start new ones and I don't experience the depth that I had in the past? What if we plant a new church and it doesn't work? There's risk to multiplication. But the alternative is to stay safe and comfortable and cozy and not do anything. And eventually our communities and our church will We have to pass the good news of the gospel on to the next generation. We have to be multiplying communities of light across this city. The greater risk is not to do anything. Always. This will take risk. This will take sacrifice. You know, I've got to tell you that um, every time I preach a vision talk, I second guess everything. I go back to the drawing board. I'm like, is this... You know, it'd be a lot easier if we just gathered a big crowd on a Sunday, preached like crazy. If I just gave 40 hours a week to sermon prep, I could preach great sermons and, you know, put more money into the band and and just do killer Sundays and just have an hour and a half commitment and then forget about it for the rest of the week because it's too hard. There's a lot of sacrifice in doing what we're trying to do. It's not easy to try and live in each other's lives like a family. It's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of personal space. This vision requires us to die to ourselves. Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples? Come, follow me. Take up your cross. That's what, it, that's what the call is, to follow Christ. Take up your cross. This requires sacrifice on our behalf. That we would die to ourselves for the sake of this city. For the sake of those who desperately need Jesus. There is nothing more Christ-like than sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. This requires time for us. You know, I'd often joke with my mates from school who, who didn't go to church. They would say things to me like, I'm so busy. I'd be like, busy? Give me a break. I'm like at church five nights a week, and I'm at a prayer meeting on Friday morning at 6 a.m., and, and then I'm like, I don't even have time to watch TV. You guys go home and watch TV every night, and all you do is play Xbox, and then maybe we come out for soccer training on Wednesday, and we hang out. And This takes time. Christians are often the busiest people I know because they're juggling sometimes 20 hours on top of careers, busy careers, like, you know, School teachers who are pumping out long hours during the middle of the week. I know you guys get 12 weeks holiday a year, but you work hard during school term. And, and, um, and shift workers and, and people in the corporate sector who are punching out long hours during the week. And we, do, we serve Jesus and we're part of a family all on top of that time. Gee, it would be easy, wouldn't it? Think about how much time you would have if you didn't have to commit to church or if you just committed an hour and a half a week. Wouldn't it be easy? requires a sacrifice of time. It requires investment. It requires risk. It requires our generosity. That we give our all. That we invest into the kingdom. That we make eternal, lasting investments into God's work in this city. And so this is... Um, This is going to be a hard task for us. It's a long-term one. It requires sacrifice. And, And I just want to say two final things on this. For some, 
This is going to mean that we send you. For some, it means leaving here and being a part of a core team, a launch team that starts a new work. For some, it's mean leaving and going to a cross-cultural mission context to make much of Jesus somewhere else outside of Australia. For some of you, it's being sent. But for some of you, it means staying in a transient culture where everyone changes job every two and a half years and apartment every 12 months and there is this constant in and out of our city and a transient culture to be a church that is stable, a family home that people know that they can come back to. It's going to require some of us to stay put. You know, the sacrifice of living in a smaller place because it's too expensive to buy anything bigger in the city. The, the desire to want to move out to the suburbs so we can have the, the big quarter-acre block and big house and nice backyard for the kids. That's true for us. We're living in this tiny two-bedroom apartment with two kids and it's kind of crazy, but there's a sacrifice in that. And for some of us, we need to stay. For some of us, there's a fear of what it's going to look like to send our children to a school in a culture that strongly opposes our views. You know, they say that church planning in the urban core is much harder than church planning in the suburbs because the opposition to the faith here in the urban center of Sydney is much stronger. There's just apathy in the burbs often. There is strong opposition to our views, our faith. What happens when you send your children to a school when no one believes in Jesus? They're the only Christian. That's scary, isn't it? Are we, are we willing to make a sacrifice to stay and be put? So some, I want to call you to think long-term about being a part of this vision and staying where you are. Others, you need to think about what God is calling you to, to be sent out from here to go and start new works. So that's how we're going to do it. It requires risk and sacrifice and generosity and time and training and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. I want to throw a couple of goals at you. Some of the things that you'll notice are in that booklet that's on your, your chair. And please don't leave them. They cost us money. Put a lot of effort into printing those things and, and, and read them. Like I know it's pretty. Don't just look at the pictures. It's not a picture book. It's a book that communicates vision. So please read it and pray over it and think about the things that excite you in that document, the things that you want to give your time and effort towards. But I just, I just want to throw a couple of numbers at you. And you might ask the question, well, why numbers? Why do we have to focus on numbers? What's so important about numbers? And I'm, I kind of wrestle with this, right? We've wrestled with this as a staff team. Why do we need the numbers in there? I, I get the tension that that creates. The problem with numbers is that we don't really control whether or not people come to faith in Jesus, do we? Well, we can say, yeah, we want to see 15 new disciples of Jesus this year. We're, we can't make that happen. We can do our best to see fit that, that there is opportunity for that, but God is the one who moves someone from death to life. And so what, what's with the numbers? Are these numbers that, that I'm going to communicate? The numbers that are in this book are a motivator. That's all they are. They're a motivator. You aim at nothing, you achieve nothing. We want to say, yeah, we want people to come to faith in Jesus. When? How many? So the numbers are there to create a sense of urgency in us. If 
15 disciples is nothing for God. 3,000 the first sermon Peter preached. 3,000 in one day. 15 in a year is nothing for Jesus. And so maybe the goal is not big enough for you. Maybe it's too big for you. But the goal is there as a motivator. It's a number to motivate you. But it's not a number to try and create the sense that people are numbers. And we're just about numbers. We're just about growth. Behind every number is a person. Behind every person is a story. A story that God is redeeming for his purposes and for his glory. And so the reason we use numbers is to motivate us. And he, let me just let you in on a little secret. The win is not achieving the goal. Success for us doesn't look like 15 new disciples this year. You might think, why, why put it on paper? Success is that you would do it. Success is that we would be a church that would step out in faith and talk about Jesus and create an opportunity for God to do the work of bringing people to himself. That's what success, that's the win for us, is that we do it. Right? And so let me throw a couple of numbers at you. And, and, and some of this we communicated at the beginning of this year, and some of this is an expansion of those, those visions and dreams that we have. The first vision is to make disciples, new disciples of Jesus. Fifteen people come to faith. We'd love to see God do, do that work this year. Over the next five years, we want to see 200 people come to faith in Jesus. 200 people in five years. Right? We want to plant new gospel communities. Our vision is to establish 10 new gospel communities this year. So we move from 10 to 20. And in five years' time, we want to see 100 gospel communities scattered across this church, scattered across our church plants as communities of mission and light in their suburbs and culture. Third, we want to plant new churches. Two church plants in the next five years. That's, that's a big one. Because we know how hard it was to get this thing off the ground. We want to do another two in the next five years. Some of you might think that's ridiculous. That a church is only two and a half years old would try and plant two more churches in five years' time. But you know, the church that I came from, my pastor Ray has a vision to plant five churches in the next ten years. Five churches in 10 years. He's already done four, two in the last four years. So it will be seven churches in 14 years if they, if they get there. I think part of our problem is that we've seen a framework of church planting or, or a lack of it that's been slow and long. But if you look at how God is working in the rest of the world, church plants are happening all the time, overnight. Like It's, it's literally spreading like a virus through India through the Middle East, church planning happening all over the place. And so I think we're slow in Western culture. And so two church plants in the next five years. Now, a couple of milestones for that vision is that, firstly, to do that, we need to raise people up. We need to train them up for that. And so next year, we want to launch a residency and internship program to identify people who would be suitable to be sent out from us to plant new churches. And so we want to work really hard. Part of our trip to the States that Brian and I are doing, Brian's already there. Tara, have you heard from him? He hasn't replied back to me. Is he alive? He's alive. Good. He just doesn't love me enough. 
We're going to try and learn from some churches in the States that have got brilliant residency internship programs. Been identifying guys, being identifying couples and, and training them, investing in them and sending them out. Bring them in, build them up, send them out. Mentor them, apprentice them to start new church plants. The other milestone is that to do this, we need to raise a quarter of a million dollars in five years to plant two new churches. That's a lot of money. That's probably just the first year startup cost for two new church plants, about $125,000 each. All right, so we want to raise that money over and above our regular giving. We're calling other churches to partner with us in that, other partners in that. And the good news is we've already got $50,000. By the end of this year, we'll have $50,000 in the kitty ready to go. So we've only got another 200000 to go, right? So that we can say to these people who we've spent time investing in, we don't just believe in you, go for it. No, we believe in you. Here's $100,000, go plant a church. And so we want to be serious. You know that you're serious about something when you put your money to it. You know what that means for us? It means we've got to make a sacrifice of not employing new staff or not moving our current staff to full-time sooner because we're investing in this thing. So we want to be committed to this with our finances. So now there's a couple of other goals in there. We want to produce a worship album. We want more people in triplets. We want to establish a partnership with Compassion Australia. We want to launch a youth ministry in 2018. We want to have prayer meetings all over our church. We want to establish a mercy ministry. Our goal is that 85% of our congregation will be giving. We want to establish an anchor academy that is training people up, training up gospel community leaders, training up triplets, training up church planters, all of that in the next five years. And then, uh, of course, there are a whole bunch of other measures that we can't quantify. They're qualitative measures. Things like prayerfulness and affection for Jesus. You can't really put a number on affection for Jesus, can you? All of those things, they, they, they're not communicated as quantifiable goals, but they're a part of what our vision is, to see a church that makes much of Jesus as we live in community on mission. But you know, as I, um, as I wrote this message this week, I... Um, I felt a couple of things, and I didn't really want to preach this sermon. And so I just want to have a little bit of a TBH moment with you guys um, and, and share with you my reaction to, to this stuff as we've been doing it. And this, is, this, is, uh, this started for us in September last year when the staff went away up the coast to, to plan and pray. This is, so it's, it's been a bit of a process. But as, as I've been reflecting on, that, on this this week, I've felt a couple of things. The first thing I've felt is this sense of holy discontent with the number of people who have been coming to Jesus at, at Anchor. And what I mean by that is this. That a lot of people, will say, you know, we get all these conferences and uh, you meet other pastors of other churches, and, and the constant thing that people say to me is, wow, isn't Anchor successful? Isn't it cool what's happened to Anchor? And, and sometimes, honestly, I'm, re I'm rejoicing. I'm like, yes, this is a phenomenal story. Praise God for what he's done. Other times I find myself kind of faking the joy, just going, yeah, yes, yeah, really cool. Because there's a discontent in my heart. Because here's my vision for this church. My vision for this church isn't that we would just have great teaching and great worship and a great kids ministry. And honestly, I don't know if there's another church that does better morning tea 
than Anchor. Like seriously, it is Pinterest worthy, our morning teas, right? So if you want the best morning tea in the whole of Sydney, you come to Anchor Church. But is, I mean, is, are we satisfied with that? Is that what we want to be known for? Hey, we're the church that everyone Pinterests their morning tea, right? I, I don't want to leave that legacy. I want to be the church where people in their droves are flocking to Jesus, where people are finding new life, where people are getting saved. Because you can get all of those things at any other church in this city. Hundreds of them offer that. I don't know of many, if any, that are seeing hundreds of people get saved. Maybe there's a few. So as I preach this stuff, there's a, there is a joy. Please don't mishear me. There, there, I mean, God, this has been a phenomenal work that has happened here in the last two and a half years. But there's also a part of me that wants for more. Not because I'm greedy, not because I'm discontent. Well, maybe I am. Maybe it's a holy discontent. And maybe there are a bunch of things that I need to work on and do business with God in that. But I'm just I'm trying to be really honest with you here, right? So that's one reaction. As we cast this vision, we've been doing it. We've been multiplying gospel communities. But there's something in me that wants more. There's a holy discontent. And then there's another bit, which is probably even harder to share, and that is that I feel like a hypocrite at times. Because I stand up the front and I cast vision for a family of missionaries and I cast vision for what it looks like to be living everyday life with gospel intentionality. And I spend 99.9% of my time with church people. And so as I cast this vision for seeing our city radically transformed, I'm always stealing other people's stories of what it looks like to be on mission because I don't have any of my own. And so I I write this message and I'm like, oh, man, I'm not sure I want to preach it because it just shines a light on my own failure to do what I'm calling all of you to do. And so I've been on a journey of confessing that this week and I want to apologize to you anchor for not leading by example because that's what Paul says to do that's what Paul says leadership is to lead by example so I want to apologize for calling you to do something that I haven't been doing myself it's not that there's not a willingness to do there to, to do that there is a desire to do that but that desire hasn't translated to reality in my life And then I had this other thought this week, and that was that if I'm feeling like this, then my guess is there's a whole host of you out there who feel the same. That as I'm up here beating the drum of being a family of missionaries, often that vision can feel crushing and leave us feeling guilty because we're not doing it. And so what hope is there that this might happen for us? I mean, should we just... Should we just go back to an hour and a half commitment on Sunday, make it easier? So what I want to do um, as I close this morning, gosh, I'm running out of time. What I want to do as I close this morning is two things. I want to give you faith to believe that God can do this. And secondly, I want to give you the gospel that covers our failures and motivates this kind of vision. Is that all right? We go there. Let's go to Mark chapter 6, a story 
of Jesus and a phenomenal work of transformation that he does and multiplication. So this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Mark chapter 6, verse 35. This is what it says. And when it grew late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send the people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give, them, give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. And broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the leftovers were five thousand men. Here's the deal. Disciples bring a small, measly quantity of offering to Jesus and say, this is all we've got. Five loaves of bread and two fish. How are you possibly going to feed what was probably more like 10,000 people? 5,000 men plus women and children on top of that. And Jesus gives thanks, breaks it. They distribute it. They all eat. They're all satisfied. And then there's 12 baskets of leftovers at the end. Why 12 baskets of leftovers? Because Jesus wants to give his disciples a tangible, physical, real demonstration that he is able to multiply that small thing. So the disciples pick up a basket and they're like, this is more than what we started with. Every single one of them gets an evidence of God's power, an evidence of his grace, an evidence of his willingness to work. And if Jesus is the one who can multiply five, fish and five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 10,000 people, can he not multiply our small efforts here at Anchor? Can he not multiply this work to see this work radically transform this city? See, in the end, it's not about us. It's not about our strategy. It's not about our power. It's not about our giftedness. It's not about how hard we try. It's about Jesus and what he does. And so where is your faith and trust in this vision? Are you wallowing in the guilt of your own failure? Or are you looking to Jesus, the one who can do it? despite our failure and despite our sin and despite our mistakes. This can happen. This can happen because of the God that we worship. And you know, this has happened in the past. Let me just share a quick story with you of a guy called Ralph Moore. He's a pastor who first planted his church in 1977, I think, in California. And he planted a church with a vision to multiply five new churches. That's what he wanted to do. Start five new churches and he would be done. 41 years have gone by since Ralph first planted his church. I think that's right. Mass is close enough anyway. 41 years since Ralph Moore and his team of 12 people first planted their first church. What they've been committed to is a vision of multiplication. Every time their church grows, they send off about 150 people to go and start a new church. After a number of years, they lost count of the amount of times that they'd multiplied. 
And they'd lost times of the amount of their daughter churches and their granddaughter churches and their great-great-granddaughter churches had multiplied. And so what they decided to do was ring around all the churches and find out. They lost track 10 years ago at 700 churches. 700 churches. That's phenomenal in 41 years. Now, who says that Jesus can't take a small, measly effort and multiply that exponentially? But what it takes for us is a sacrificial commitment to making disciples who make disciples, multiplying communities of light, and planting new churches. And the gospel is what motivates that vision. See, in the end, vision is something that we're searching for. We're all looking for something to give our lives to. Something to die to. Something to give us purpose and direction and motivation in life. My guess is that there are many of you in this room this morning who have no purpose. You don't know what to live for. You don't know what to die for. There's no direction. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they find rest in Jesus. And in Christ, purposelessness evaporates. He is the one who gave his life, literally gave his life for God's cause, for God's vision, that the earth would be covered with his glory. Jesus gave his life for you, that you would glorify God, that you would live life no longer in the light of your own kingdom, but in the light of his if those of you this morning who are here who are feeling like there is nothing to really live for, there is no purpose, then I want to suggest that you come to Jesus and find a purpose that you never realized was possible for your life, something to give your life towards, something to die for, His fame, His glory, His church. And Christ does that by dying on the cross for you, dying in your place for your sin to set you free. If that's you this morning and you'd like to receive Jesus, our prayer team will be up the back. They would love to pray for you and show you how you can make a step of faith in trusting Jesus today. But there may be many here this morning who are just like me, feeling guilty and burdened by your failure and your mistakes. It's the same gospel that you need to hear this morning, that Jesus covers your sin that Jesus sets you free, that Jesus gives you a new purpose to live for. And so there may be many this morning who need to remind yourselves of the gospel again, that this is worth living for, that this is worth giving everything for. And if that's you, again, come back for prayer. We would love to pray for you. And if you need prayer for anything, our team would love to pray for you. Don't just leave it to those two things. We're also going to respond in worship and with the Lord's Supper. Down the front to the sides are four stations. Bread and grape juice is there. And we invite you to dip the bread into the grape juice. Those of you who love Jesus and eat it, remembering that Jesus gave everything for you. We respond in worship. Let's do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who has a missionary heart for this world, that your vision is that the name of Jesus would be lifted up in this city, in our lives. God, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would give us the faith to believe that this can happen. 
God, we pray that we would see this as something worth giving everything towards. Not anchor, not our brand, but your kingdom, the name of Jesus. God, we want to give you everything this morning and say, please do with us as you see fit. Glorify Jesus in us. We ask it in his strong name. And those who agreed said, amen.